in this corner, weighing in at two Academy Award wins and a mouthful of sass, it's Betty Boom Boom Davis. And in this corner with three nominations, no wins, but a history in the biz, it's Gloria ready for her close-up Swanson. This is the 23rd Academy Awards. Let's get ready to rumble. Very nice. Very solid. I added that at the end. I wonder if we'll get sued because that's probably trademarked, but whatever. <laughs> They're not listening. Let's be real. But yes, welcome back to the Gilded Films podcast. Thank you, Christian, for that brilliant introduction. I'm Brett, and today we have returning. You heard them on our 1939 episode. We have Zay back here with us. Hello. It is I, the corn cryptid of Indiana. <laughs> yes. We are here today to talk about, as Christian mentioned, the 23rd Academy Awards, celebrating the films of 1950. Uh, once again, we have this thing with landing on these um, anniversaries uh, for these years. We just missed the 70th anniversary for this, but we are on the 69th anniversary. Hey. Uh, take that as you will. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, some great movies. <laughs> once again, going back to five nominees christian if you want to take us away into this year and the oscars of 1950 and some stuff that you learned recently okay i learned this all today you guys in like 30 <laughs> minutes all of you out there listening okay so the it started the 23rd academy awards with the academy president charles brackett coming out and saying like Ugh, it was maybe a four minute speech about how 19 1950 ending was a good thing because there was a lot of people dying in Korea. The Korean War was going on, so a lot of bloodshed there. And too many people were escaping to their bomb shelters, which, I mean, nowadays we see that in movies and we're like, wow, I can't believe that was like actually a thing. But no, the, actually a thing, the fear of the bomb falling at any moment. Um, like I said, the Korean War had began in 1950. Uh, Korean conflict, really, for America in that. Um, just little fun facts that a black and white TV, which was sort of at the apex of having this big boom in households, cost $250 at the time. Again, that's black and white. It would be another year, 1951, I believe. Zay probably knows this, when I Love Lucy would premiere. So, you know, that. Um we also have the introduction to Charles Schultz's Peanuts comic, so Charlie Brown and Snoopy, which I thought was actually pretty cool. Um, here's a fun fact for Zay, John Wayne. <laughs> Zay, your favorite actor, was the number one money-making star of the day. My favorite. I'm so happy for his success. <laughs> He's happy for you, Pilgrim. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also with these Oscars, Fred Astaire is the host. You can actually find um, a good amount of the videos from the ceremony on YouTube. I watched a few. I believe Brett watched a few as well. Um, he's a little he's a little awkward, but then again, it was not televised. It, you can definitely see that this maybe they did clips that would show in front of movies later on in 1951. He's totally reading off paper the whole time. He's very stiff, which is on Fred Astaire like. And we also have Truman being the president, good old Harry, and uh, McCarthyism in full force. So 
out with the communist in the government, I guess, because that was like a big issue. Yeah, I mean, it was the next year, I think, 1951, where they had this second big round of HUAC hearings um, for Hollywood screenwriters, directors, and actors, actresses, and whatnot. And so pretty big there. Yeah, you mentioned Fred Astaire being really awkward at the ceremony. It kind of seemed like everybody was, like everybody that went up to speak, it was just so like, almost like they didn't want to be there from the videos I watched today. They actually had some guy from the UN come in and present best picture. And his oh, yeah. whole like- I like totally skipped that because that was the longest video ever. Oh my God, it was it was awful. Like I, I watched, I listened to all of it and he's just going on and on about all the th stuff in the UN and what they're doing. And I'm like, dude, this is the Oscars. Like, and then he gets to present the nominees and he just like reads through them, no excitement at all. It's pretty cringy, honestly. But And like, it's still also interesting too that a lot of the winners, well, I would say two. Two weren't there. Uh, they were in New York at the like the sister ceremony. And like mm -hmm. you told me today, Jose Ferrer literally called in his acceptance speech. And like, yeah, Judy Holiday didn't give one. Josephine Hull gave one. George Sanders didn't give one. He literally accepted the award and walked off stage. I know. I was like, wait, what? What's going on? So definitely an Oscars of yesteryear, because nowadays it'd be like you have no choice but to give a speech. Yeah, and like you said, I think it was two years later that they started televising the Oscars. So it was pretty easy to tell that they weren't doing that yet mm -hmm. from the video we watched. So, yeah, any, um, before we get in on these Oscar nominees, any trends that either of you might have noticed from the nominees, anything that stuck out to you this year? A lot of noir. There's a lot of, a lot of noir. Maybe not in like the top the, the picture nominees, but everywhere else. Yeah, it seemed like half the movies I was watching for this were like film noirs in some way or another, which is something we haven't been used to because this is the first year that we've covered that's really been in that era. Um, I really love them, so it was nice. But I noticed a lot of I noticed a lot of um, female centered films, like really strong female. Oh, so many strong female performances in the, I mean, the five movies alone, but also the ones that we also like chose and just other random ones that we watched for the year. So that's interesting too. Well, I'd say four of the best picture nominees had strong females. <gasps> Damn. We'll get yeah. to that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, another thing we'll get into is that best actress race. Oh, and yeah. the five nominees alone, like it's super competitive there. But when you think of all the performance that weren't nominated, I think, I mean, we'll go through all of our personal nominations, but I think there were like five more that I didn't include that would really be in contention for almost winning. But yeah, um, very competitive category with best actress. One of the most, if not the most competitive, I think we've ever seen. And so we'll get into that as well. Anything else on the year 1950 or this Oscar ceremony? I think that it was a good year for movies. I agree. There are, it was almost a perfect year for the five nominees. I will say I agree with four out of five of All them right. being there. 
for like the most part, looking at a 1950s perspective, looking at a 2019 perspective, totally different. We'll get to that, but you know. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Well, with that, um, we will move in to our best picture nominees. Again, we have five from this year. And Zay, if you would go ahead and introduce our first I show. The movie Born Yesterday, directed by Ju George Decor, um, about Harry Brock, a tycoon who moves to Washington, D.C. with his girlfriend, uh, Billy Dawn, played by Judy Holliday, in order to influence politicians, in order to gain more power. Um, but he decides that Billy is just not smart enough to be married to her. So he gets a tutor for her in order to be educated and to get some culture. And as Billy gets more smart, not more smart, but she gains this intelligence book smarts, she starts to think for herself and starts to get wise as to what Harry is doing and even starts to fall for her tutor. And what comes of that? Not to spoil it. Yeah. Um, had you both seen this before? No. Watch. I hadn't either. Which I technically had. I saw it in February, but and then y'all announced nineteen fifty, and I was like, I'm already there. Nice. And I've seen it before, so. Yeah, this is a first time watch for me as well. Um, a big draw to the film being Judy Holiday um, because she did win Best Actress for this film. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I keep seeing about this um, that I would agree with is that although you have like Betty Davis, um, Ann Baxter, Gloria Swanson, this these amazing performances that Judy Holiday beats and maybe shouldn't have just to a lot of people, it's still a pretty good win because she does give a really nice performance here. Yeah, it's it's to me one of those performances that's like she was born for it. She was literally born for born yesterday. And I know that she played the part on Broadway, so she's pretty much accustomed to it. So when they were I know that also when they were coming to cast it, Catherine Hepburn, having worked with her on Adam's Rib, um, actually suggested that Judy just go ahead and like play the part and hope that the studio took her and overnight sensation you know that's good but yeah this is what like her second film role i think so yeah yeah i think if it was any other year though like no it would never be in contention like i would be like yeah she deserved the oscar mm -hmm. but against betty davis and gloria swanson everyone was just like mm. it's like an in in hindsight sort of thing too true and I love, I think my favorite thing is, I mean, I love the stories, like the hot gossip of this Oscars and like supposedly Betty Davis was happy. She was like a newcomer. And then Gloria Swanson was like, why couldn't you wait until next year? <laughs> <laughs> like, could you just imagine? And then also Gloria and Judy were both at the same New York like sister party of this Oscars and they sat next to one another and there's actual pictures that you can 
simply Google, and they're very interesting because they're sitting between George Cukor and Jose Ferreira, and you're just like waiting. And I think there's one where you actually see Judy winning, and it's like, wow, you know, Gloria wanted to kill her. <laughs> That's awkward. But yeah, but anyway, we're focusing on all these actresses. The film itself, I like the film. I very much do. I think it's like a Pygmalion, My Fair Lady type situation. Minus there's no like asshole loving her back or whatever. Because it's William Holden. He's in he's in two movies, as far as I know, for 1950. And he's sort of her love interest in this. One's Broderick Crawford. When she sort of gets rid of him after she starts, you know, as they said, thinking for herself. But it's it's like a rags to riches almost, but more street smart to book smart. But keeping that street smart brassiness in her. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the transformation of her character. Um, not even transformation, but the more like the the outcoming of who she really is. And I really love how they kind of foreshadow it. My favorite scene in the movie is when they're playing cards and she's just like kicking his ass and she's shuffling through these cards in her hands super quickly and just looks like a professional. And it kind of gives that clue like she's she's really intelligent like she's mm -hmm. she's got a good head on her shoulders um but he and all these others are kind of holding it back in some ways i like how i love the, that scene though i like how the story progressed and you can see that as she gets smarter he just gets madder at the fact even though he wanted her to be smarter and he's and it's just like it's a very feminist like sort of narrative that like we expect women to have enough smarts but you can't be smarter than the men yeah mm -hmm. yeah and especially because he's such like a dirty he's a downright dirty crook mm -hmm. and she's finally figuring out what the hell he's doing with all this and it's like you ain't gonna take no damn advantage of me i shouldn't say damn i want to be like her and go find a dictionary and look up like the best world <laughs> word possible that's oh, another that great moment sense. that was good that's like yeah. along with the card scene, it's like to find what she wants to say, she got to go to the dictionary and she got to look it up and she's like, boom. Yeah, I love it. Um, but yeah, the uh, what's Harry Brock, um, played by Broderick Crawford, who puts on a performance that's very like, very showy, very over the top and I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. I mean, I knew I didn't like him cause he's freaking awful. Um, the character, but at times I was like, dude, calm down. Um, but that's like part of who the character is as well. So did you like William Holden in this? Yeah. Um, obviously like compared to like his role in sunset Boulevard doesn't even compare, but like, I liked William Holden. I didn't think he was particularly memorable, um, especially when he's standing next to Judy Holiday in, in her role for a lot of the film. Um, yeah, I liked him. He was good. Hmm. I don't know. Again, it's a good movie. Is it like, I guess it is memorable in the sense that we talk really the most about Judy's win against other people, but is it memorable in the long run in like 2019? That's a good question. Um, 
I didn't know much about this movie. And like you said, um, until we watched it, and like you said, most of what I knew about it was regarding Judy Holiday and her win. And so mm-hmm. I think that's the, probably its biggest legacy. Yeah. I would like it to be. I mean, I don't think it's like the best thing ever, like perfection, but I think it's light and like fun enough and has at least some kind of message attached to it Mm -hmm. that I think it's worth people seeking out. Oh yeah, I agree. Definitely. It's, It's a really nice watch that I think a lot of people could enjoy and really get something out of. And so I agree. Mm-hmm. I guess one th- other thing I would say, um, this film has been remade um, both by its its own title, Born Yesterday, and also kind of like in other forms. Um, there was that movie with Freddie Prince Jr. that was kind of like another take on Pygmalion. I don't remember what it's called. But um, I kind of want to make a tally of all the films this year that have since had remakes because... I think most of them have, especially among the best picture nominees. There have been a, there have been a lot. Yeah. And I only checked out one of them. <laughs> Didn't watch them. It was another mistake that I did last time. Another Mr. Chips. Yeah. But yeah. Born yesterday. Anything else on this movie before we move on? Could this is a good question that I have now. Could it be made today? I don't think in the same sense, but I think it could be. If you take like its grassroots, I think so. About mm-hmm. like um, political tampering and a woman like learning that the relationship she's in is not all that she thought it was as she gets like smarter to it. Not necessarily that she starts out dumb and then get smarter as the movie progresses because I, I think there's too much like realism in film now that it just wouldn't translate as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that definitely like a screenplay um, inspired by born yesterday, maybe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Actually, actually I want to go back that we did not mention that Billy holiday's performance in this film would later on be emulated by Judy holidays. God damn it. <laughs> I'm trying my best. Okay, Judy Holiday's performance would later be emulated by Gene Hagen for her character in Singing in the Rain. And that alone, because Gene Hagen literally said that she based um, her character from this movie, like she just stole it. Which Gene, which Gene Hagen in the Asphalt Jungle, which we'll get to later. I always forget that's her because the voice is like not the voice I'm used to knowing of her. <laughs> but now that you mention it, I'm like, shit, what do you know? That's like Judy Holiday in Singing in the Rain pretty much. Exactly. And that's why when she starts talking, I'm like, I know that voice. I definitely know that voice. And then doing research, it went right there. And I was like, why didn't I think of that? But yeah. And also, before we move on, I just want to say that Judy Holiday was a very delightful actress. Like, pretty much anything I've seen her in, I've always been delighted by her. It's just, I don't know, it's her charisma. It's probably the voice a little bit, but... Yeah, and unfortunately, she had a pretty short career. Um, I think she passed away of breast cancer, like, 15 years after this movie was released. Yeah. So. All right, Christian, you are responsible for our next film. 
Okay, so our next nominee was Father of the Bride. Not that one, if y'all have film fans, but 1950s, directed by Vincent Minnelli and starring Spencer Tracy as Stanley Banks, whose daughter Kay Banks, played by a very young Elizabeth Taylor, is basically getting married, and he is the titular character. <laughs> and... I mean, hijinks ensue because he's cheap and he wants the best for his daughter. And this is the most basic plot I can think of because that's pretty much the movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very... I, I, I will say I love this movie. I like watching it at least once a year, maybe. But it's basic in the sense that it's about a father who wants the best for his daughter in a very cheap wedding, but something that his daughter will be happy with, his wife will be happy with, and he'll be happy with so that everybody can live happily ever after. The end. Father of the Bride. Yeah. Yeah, I see it. <laughs> there's a sequel like a year later. So there's a there is a sequel to this movie, Father's Little Dividend, which is about the baby. Which is a wild title. It really, when I first saw that, like years ago, I was like, "What's a dividend?" Like, oh, this is about a baby. I, why didn't say like father's father of the grandchild or something? Which sounds weird, I guess. Father of the grandchild. <laughs> oh, shoot! Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, Father of the Bride, nineteen fifty, nominated for. <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, like I said, I like this movie. It's simple. It's a fun watch. Spencer Tracy. I, I think I like Spencer Tracy more in comedies than I do dramas. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just because, I don't know, this, the funny scene where he's trying on his, uh, his old wedding outfit. <laughs> Why do I want to say dress? <laughs> suit. His suit from his wedding and it doesn't fit. It's nice. And Joan Bennett as his wife is good. Should have been Catherine Hepburn, but that's neither here nor there. And Elizabeth Taylor is good, I guess, being her woe was me self. It's a very watered down performance for her, I think. Like she really restrains herself in this. She's and not I, given, she's not like given a whole lot either. That's true. Because she's not the star. And I think once she's given star starring roles, like her acting style, they definitely switches over to how we remember her. Yeah, um, I agree on Spencer Tracy and comedies. He just really plays that grumpy man <laughs> as well as it could be played, I guess. I really love the scene and I don't I laughed audibly at it and I almost felt bad because it's such a like old prank, it seems like. But when he's trying to open the bottles on the bottle opener in the kitchen and he's in the midst of everybody ordering the drinks so much that he has no room to do anything else. That's the best scene. It really is. It's hilarious. Because he makes all those, I think it's martinis, and his wife says, why are you making all those? And it's basically, everybody's going to drink these because it's a basic drink. But people come in and they're like, no, I want this to drink. I want this to drink. Hey, how are you doing? I'll take this to drink. And he's like, I made all these martinis for nothing. <laughs> and he misses his big speech because of it. And so... That's basically representative of how the entire thing goes. 
But I guess what I liked most about this, because um, on one hand, it's like it's the nominee that's really just easy to sit down and just watch anytime. I mean, it's charming. It's, you know, it's a good pick me up kind of feel good movie. But it also does a few things that I wouldn't expect from a comedy, especially from 1950. Like it begins with him breaking the fourth wall and it almost has the tone of a dramatic film because he's about to describe this experience. And then there's a scene where um, he's dreaming and it's almost like a surreal catastrophic dream about the wedding that really, I really liked because I didn't expect it at all. Um, it was very different than the rest of the movie, honestly. Yeah, just did some things like that that I didn't see coming, I guess, yeah. is what I liked. It's also interesting talking about this that I forgot until I said it that Vincent Minnelli directed this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know him from a lot of the musicals that he made, of course. And it feels like this is just like a quick way to make a buck for him. Yeah, like he was like a director for hire for this or something. Yeah, because like watching this, it feels like it's it definitely you don't get that Minnelli vibe to it. And it's like watching it, you're going to see directed by Vincent Millie. You're like, oh, I should be seeing like a person I don't know his name, but I know that name. <laughs> Especially when he's going to win for An American in Paris in just a few years. Like, yeah, you would never know they were directed by the same guy. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling, too. I think the first Vincent Minnelli film that I watched was um, The Pirate. And watching that and this was like two completely different experiences. Mm -hmm. I like the way Zay put it, the director for hire. Because <laughs> I, oh. I think Minnelli even went to make the sequel too. So Yeah, he did. And it's just weird to think that there's a sequel to this because you don't get a whole lot of sequels from this era of Hollywood. You well, know, like, his, like filmography. He also did Undercurrent, which was like a noir with Catherine Hepburn. So maybe he was just friends with the Hepburn and Tracy, like working with them. He's like, I got to get out of this house. Judy's singing too much. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, I'll be here all day. But anyway, um, so Brett, you have written here that this movie made six million, which translated to number five at the box office. So, like, I mean, I can dig it. I understand. Yeah. People want to feel good movie, you know. Definitely. And then again, another remake: the Steve Martin, Diane Keaton masterpiece remake 1991 like that movie is my childhood argue with me i've never seen it i think i've maybe seen like 10 minutes of it like here and there when my mom was watching on abc family that's about it i saw a long time ago what kimberly williams right is the daughter is that her name yeah kimberly williams paisley paisley yeah kimberly williams yeah Married to Brad Paisley now. Um, but yeah, that one also had a sequel and it was not called whatever weird title the original. <laughs> Father's Little Dividend. In the 90s, could you imagine? <laughs> it was simply Father of the Bride Part 2. There you go. So, 
But yeah, um, number 83, we talked about a lot about the AFI list last time with our 1939 movies. This was number 83 on their 100 funniest movies. Um, had three nominations, picture, obviously. Spencer Tracy did get one for best actor, and the screenplay was nominated as well. Hmm. Interesting. We have literally two movies back-to-back that we've spoken of that are just like delightful little comedies that are easy to digest and What's different with Father of the Bride, I think, though, is I could see how that kind of translated into later things. Because, like, the curmudgeon old dad who's like, I don't want to pay for all this, but I love my daughter. <laughs> I saw that in so many things. And I'm like, maybe that's why I didn't love it as much as you guys. Because I'm just like, I kept thinking to, like, other things I've seen that, like, copied it. And I'm like. Yeah. Wasn't it you, wasn't it you who texted me while you were watching it, like, do the bride's parents pay for things. I know. No, I was also like, is this just old fashioned or is this just too heteronormative for my brain to even process anymore? No, because then I asked my mom and I got like this whole conversation about how like paying for a wedding works. And that's really interesting. Like that tradition and all the weird wedding traditions that we see in the movie that I don't know, like even traditional weddings today still don't contain some of those things Mm -hmm. and i don't know the wedding scene was kind of weird for me i guess just watching it in 2019 it's it's just one example of how it's aged um it's kind of weird to watch now so yeah i mean it was it's a funny movie um i did like tracy's performance (laughs) he spoiler alert he is not one of my personal nominated actors from this year, but he was right among the five for quite a while. Um, so he is funny in the role. So, yeah. Anything else on Father of the Bride? It oh. is a oh oh. I have one. Zay, do you you go first? Oh no, mine's a kind of a transitional one. So you go. Okay. <laughs> I'm all about fun facts. One of the reasons why people think that this movie made such a big impact and stuff and good promotional material is because Elizabeth Taylor, around the time of its premiere, got married to Nikki Hilton, the heir to the Hilton Hotel chain. There you go. And MGM used that for exploitation to say, hey, come and see our little movie. (laughs) As they do. Bada bing, bada boom. Take it away, Zay. I have nothing else to add to this movie, but I'm trying my best to keep it going along so we don't have to talk about the next one. (laughs) (laughs) And And now with our next film, In the Wilds of Africa, we meet Brett. (laughs) I have sacrificed myself to introduce this next movie. Okay, this one is called King Solomon's Mines. This follows an adventurer named Alan Quartermain. Um, And basically he's approached by Elizabeth Curtis, who is played by Deborah Kerr. And she had this husband who went into Africa, into uncharted territory that hadn't been documented yet, searching for the titular mines. Disappeared. They don't know where he went or if he's even still alive. And so she wants to pay Quartermain to lead this expedition. And at first, he's like, no, 
I'm not about this. Um, he's super sexist. He's like, I'm not going to take a woman on the safari. Are you kidding me? And then he's like, oh, $5,000? Sure, I'll do it. Um, and basically from there, it's it's an adventure movie. Um, there's a lot of int interaction between the white adventurers and um, the native folks in Africa, which kind of develops its own subplot in the film. Let's just say... To me, this was like a really poorly made nature documentary. There's like a 30 or 45 segment of this film in which like it just cutting between scenes of them seeing some animal that they see as dangerous. And it's like, oh, look out. And <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, don't let that poisonous snake come here. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. Uh, and that's just what and they kind just of kill it. Hurt. Wait, what? They just kill it. Like, you can't be going to Africa and just being like, oh, no, there's dangerous things. We have to kill things if we see the danger. <laughs> uh, leave it alone. Walk away. Yeah, it's it's annoying. And honestly, I, I found it really dull. Like, if I'm going to watch a movie that's, like, pegged as an adventure film, I'm not saying I'm expecting, like, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But I want a little more excitement. And a little less of these people like trouncing on this land and having a problem with everything that exists there. And so that's think, King Solomon's mind. I think the issue here is that they're not explorers, they're tourists. And like they're just so not prepared. And it's not comedic in any way. It's annoying. I was annoyed at the I don't like these people. I was ready for them to be stomped by an elephant, bit by the snake, any of these things. <laughs> I would agree. I will say that one year later, the African queen did the same exact thing, but did it a lot better. Because they were likable. I like them. <laughs> like, quite honestly. But as the one here who gave this movie, I think, three stars, mm -hmm. I gave it three, mostly for that cinematography. Because the cinematography is good. We're talking about color cinematography here, not black and white. It won for cinematography. The editing win that it got. Yeah. But I don't know. It's not a movie that I would see twice, says the one who has seen it twice. <laughs> <laughs> the first time was not for this podcast. It was years ago, but I did not remember a single thing. And it's no wonder I didn't remember anything because it's not that memorable. I mean, the whole walking stuff that you're talking about, where they're just seeing, like, the wilds of Africa next on planet Earth. <laughs> it's, like, not interesting. And no. then, like, half, literally halfway through the walking, they get to the, I guess, the titular mines, don't they? Yes. Dude, this movie's forgettable. I don't even know if they make it. <laughs> Whatever, kids. You're never going to see it. They make it to the mines, and it's, like, the most anticlimactic thing I mean, sure, they get like, they go into the mine, stuff happens, and then they go to this village where these natives want to kill them, and they're like shocked. Like, obviously, you're kind of intruding on their land. And then there's a big old character plot twist. Like, their tourist guide is like really a chief or something, and they're like, what? We've been with this man the whole time? <laughs> yeah, they, they don't develop the character at all. Then they're like, oh, but wait, he's a king. And it's like, 
okay, <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know where this is going, but okay, sure. He's going to go fight somebody for the throne. Yeah. Like, Deborah, what, what were you thinking being in this movie? Uh, th- uh, that's my biggest complaint. This is the one thing I remember the most, is how insufferable Deborah Kerr is in this. And I love her. She's one of my favorite old Hollywood actresses. And I think that's why she's so insufferable because she was committed to being insufferable and just whining and moaning the whole film. And I'm like, why did you come? Yeah. Her and Stuart Granger, both. I just could not get into either of their performances or like you mentioned, their characters. So I I'm reading here that I guess MGM wanted Errol Flynn to co-star. I, I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference. But they probably would have had better chemistry because Errol Flynn is Errol Flynn. Yeah. You know, but I will say, and I think I texted this to both of you. In the hindsight of 1950, I can understand why this got a nomination. Because one, as written here, it was the number one film of the box office. 10 million smackaroos, which is like $900 billion in today's standards. And I don't know, people like these sort of travel log, nature documentary, fictional movies. And it's supposed to be like this swashbuckling action movie. It's not. They walk for like two hours. Again, not much happens there. But it's like, ooh, we're Americans. We've never seen Africa. Look at these African people. How exotic are they? Like Deborah Carr, she's walking around with these folks. That's cool. Let's give this movie our money. And MGM's like, yes, please, because we spent a goddamn fortune shipping all these goddamn uh, actors and cameras over to Africa for this one movie. I will say that, like, other than the idea of being, like, Western people going to see these exotic people, I thought that the treatment of African people was framed in a better way than I thought they were going to. I agree. And I... Part of the reason I gave it one and a half stars instead of one is for two. Like I gave it a half star for the cinematography and because of that reason, um, because I was just, when I read about it, I was expecting it to be just awful, completely, really, really bad representation. And it's still far from great. Um, it's still pretty exploited and whatnot, but it's better than I expected. So, Especially because I heard that the book it's based on is quite racist. So, unsurprising. Good on them. And I know that the Deborah Carr character doesn't even ex- like exist in the book. What? So were they just yeah. like, we need an actress, we need an actress in here to get the people in, and so they wrote a nothing role for her. And uh, this is, I mean, this is a remake of a of a movie already from like the '30s or whatever, and I don't think. I've read that there's not even a female character in the first version of this story. Interesting. Yeah. So, but then, I mean, this is remade again, right? Uh, three more times. Wow. One notable one that I got from the library in 1985. <laughs> Don't remember the actor, but Sharon Stone is the actress. I think it's, I think it's Richard Chamberlain. Is it? 85, right? Yes. 
Sure enough, Richard Chamberlain. Oh, oh wow, yeah. look at the poster looks so like Indiana Jones with like stuff exploding and skulls and alligators and like Nazis and airplanes. I did not see that because I was after I watched the the 51 I was like, "No, nah, I don't want to deal with this world again." <laughs> and I just gave it back to the library. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, I mean, we've been talking about sort of like memorable stuff. The other two movies are memorable. This one I mean, if you're like a completist who wants to watch all the best picture nominees ever, do it, but never, you don't need to see it twice. I say, as again, I've seen it twice. <laughs> no, it's memorable for how bad it is to be. And I loved when you texted me, you're like, I've tried sitting through this movie twice, but I fell asleep both times. <laughs> I did. And I thought it was just because I was tired because I was, but I was like, no, I just, this movie is literally putting me to sleep. <laughs> And so uh, the 2004 version featured Patrick Swayze in the lead role. Yes, that was like a TV miniseries or whatever. Oh, is that what it was? Okay. Mm -hmm. And the 1937 one that you mentioned um, starred Paul Robeson. So it's kind of interesting. But yeah, it had the three noms. You mentioned its wins um, and won every award except for Best Picture, which it was nominated for. Thank goodness. So I mean, I cinematography was split black and white in color. Mm -hmm. I I mean, eh, I'll give it to it. What else was it nominated against? Yeah, I'm looking at the other nominees. I'll was give Annie it to get that. your gun nominated. Yeah, Annie get your gun, Broken Arrow, which is a western, The Flame and the Arrow, which I'm not sure what that is, and Samson and Delilah, which is a biblical epic. So, I mean, again, when you have the wilds of Africa in 1950 for Western audiences are going to be like, Ooh, ah, oh, that's so groundbreaking Oscar. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Anything else on this movie? It's a movie. It's a movie. <laughs> Unfortunately. But we are heading to better territory, especially with our next film, Christian. I'm sure you're excited to introduce this one. Yay, okay. This is the second greatest movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> the first greatest, of course, for me is The Wizard of Oz. The second is Sunset Boulevard. So this is Sunset Boulevard, directed by Billy Wilder. It tells the story of Joe, somebody. Wow, I love this movie, I forgot his last name. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> It's Joe, played by William Holden. Again, with William Holden, he is a struggling writer in Hollywood who one day uh, he owes money on his car. He drives the car and escapes into this house where he meets a woman, uh, Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson. And he, rec he recognizes her as this old Hollywood actress who used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Thank you. Yes. And she sort of takes him in because she finds out he's a writer. She has her script of um, a movie called Salome that she wants to make to get back into the film, specifically with um, Cecil B. DeMille, her old director, playing himself, actually. And it's just pretty much the relationship between Joe and Norma and sort of this story of Hollywood. She becomes very possessive of him 
that she buys him stuff. She really doesn't want him to go out without her. She gives him things that he doesn't really want. And there's a great, great ending to this. She has a butler who has his own sketchy secrets, played by Eric von Stroheim. And if you want to get even more Hollywood on this movie, he himself was like a very famous director at one point. Now he's in this. Um, there's a semi-love interest in Nancy Olsen. She, I mean, she's all right in this. But it's really the story of Norma and Joe. Really old Hollywood throwbacks. This is Billy Wilder's, like, love letter to Hollywood. And again, if there ever was a movie about Hollywood and how much Hollywood loves itself and has these demons in its closet, damn it, it's Sunset Boulevard, go! <laughs> It's one of my favorites. Not as far a favorite as Christian, but I think it's somewhere in my top 30. Yes. Yeah. Um, and now Brett. <laughs> First time watcher. Loved it. Five star movie. Um, I've always heard that this was a film noir. And I've always wondered like what that means because I just from the bare bones of the plot that I knew about it, I figured that was more so in the style because uh, I th always thought it was kind of a straightforward Hollywood story about this comeback. Um, but no, really, it is two-part. It is about that comeback and about this actress, but it also really is a dark and twisted noir film um, centered around these characters. And so I really love that about it. And you mentioned it presenting Hollywood, and it's so unglamorous in some ways, um, which is nice because that's that's how it was. And so, yeah. It's really also it. it's also very and sad. Swanson. Yeah. Oh, go ahead about her. I want to hear. I was going to say Gloria Swanson, Gloria Swanson. Um, two very big thumbs up. Great, great performance. One of the best. Better be. <laughs> but no, this movie is also. I think not this movie. Excuse me. <clears throat> this film is also very sad. Um. I feel so much for Norma Desmond. I think she's one of the greatest movie characters ever written. She's probably my favorite, like number one. If I had to make a list, it's Norma Desmond. But you can't help feel sorry for her. And it's so good that Gloria Swanson is this character too because they both have sort of this parallel life where they're both in silent movies. We actually get to see a little clip of one of her movies uh, Gloria Swanson's in this. She is a silent film star. She really hadn't been doing anything with the sound post-1927 when sound came out. And now she wants to be back in the business. And this is like her swan song. And by her, I mean both Gloria and Norma. Norma. Um, but yeah, I mean, and that whole scene where she goes back to Paramount to meet DeMille. And like the real reason she's there is like so fucking sad. Like, she makes her an appearance, and then the real reason they want her there is just for her car and not her. It's like, ah, oh, damn, that's just like, yeah. I love that Cecil B. DeMille appeared himself. I didn't expect him to actually play himself in the movie, and I was like, hell yeah. Him and Hedda Hopper is in it. I was like, this is awesome. Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton, yeah. Apparently, Cecil B. DeMille's pay cut was, like, really big. And he was only shooting, he only shot for a day. For like the five minutes he's actually in this? Yeah. <laughs> and with that paycheck, he made the Ten Commandments. 
Mm. Actually, not really. Greatest show on earth would be next for him, but that's another story. Controversial Oscar win. Yeah, you mentioned Gloria Swanson's career. I was looking. She only made one feature-length movie in the 1940s. And then after Sunset Boulevard, she made a few more films and really made a transition into TV after that. Mm -hmm. She's on a really good episode of The Carol Burnett Show. Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock Hour, um, Burke's Law, My Three Sons, a lot of those shows she appeared in at some point. And a television movie called Killer Bees. <laughs> well, I have to go find that now. <laughs> Christian, I'm interested to hear in like your journey with this movie and all of what makes it your number two. It all began in a 500 watt radio station in San Francisco, California. <laughs> if we have like really old listeners out there, they might get that reference. I'll let you Google that. I don't even know if I said it right. Anyway, I first saw this movie, I think in like 2007 from the library to say how long ago that was. I actually watched it on VHS. I had, I'm pretty sure I watched it the year of the AFI's 100 10th anniversary, so that would have been 2007. And I, I was just like totally interested in it. It looked very appealing, especially I think they were talking about just how it is a really good start with like old Hollywood movies. Um, but I don't know. And there was something really about that. It's the last scene because everybody shows the scene of Mr. DeMille. I'm ready for my close up. And that like stuck with me, I guess, that I watched it. I loved it. I like told people about it who didn't even care because they were my age. And again, nobody's watching movies from the fifties except for me back in like 2007. And then I don't know, I've slowly built up on it. I think I've logged it on letterbox like 10 or 11 times, which for me is like the record on my personal like statistics page. And I don't know, it's very influential for me. I think it has one of the best screenplays. Again, Norma Desmond's the best character, if I could make a list. But it's that screenplay that's like, if I could ever write a screenplay as good as this, it, I would look at Sunset Boulevard and go from there and then just wish I could duplicate this. But I probably can't. I've nice. seen this film three, four times. And every time I see it, I get more out of it. And I love it even more. It's just so layered and so nuanced. There's just so many ways you could look at it. You could look at it through a film lens, a noir lens, as a screenwriter lens. Because he has that speech about how people who write scripts, they think the actors are just making it up as they go along. And But it's an actor saying it out loud is just... It even gets a little meta then. And it's it very, to... this, this movie's like very much a masterclass in how to make a movie, how like you got your film history in it, masterclass in directing and writing and acting. It's like, this is a film student's dream, except nowadays these film students are all like, I want to be the next Michael Bay. <laughs> Quantum Torlini. Oh, God. <laughs> and I say Michael Bay because I actually knew somebody in film school who was like, I want to make movies like him. And I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Also, 
an interesting thing to think about. Three years after this movie came out, there was a Salome movie that came out starring Rita Hayworth. <laughs> it's quite bad. <laughs> interesting. So box office, it was number, you don't even have a number. So it made 5 million. It wasn't Lost. in the top 10. That's all I know. That's sad. Yeah. Um, a musical adaptation followed. So this has not been remade, but it has been remade into a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. It starred originally Patti LuPone, and then, oh, wow, I could do a whole little spiel on the history of that incident. <laughs> because then Glenn Close brought this to Broadway, and it's actually considered one of like the best roles ever. And I think next year, or two years, we are getting another... It's finally getting its remake in a musical form, movie musical form. And Glenn Close is going to win her Oscar. It won at the Globes Best Drama, Director, Actress, and Score. Well-deserved. Number 16 on AFI's Top 100. Number 12 back in 98. So it stayed in the top 20. Um, number 7 in quotes for All Right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. 24 in quotes also, which I am big. It's the pictures that got small. And number 16 for uh, AFI's 100 film scores, which I never knew that, but hell yeah, because that scores my life. I would like to nominate a third quote, which is dear to my heart, that I think constantly. It was all very queer, but queer things were yet to come. <laughs> nice. That one gets me all the time now. <laughs> The quotes are really interesting, though, because as someone who has seen the um, All Right, Mr. DeMille um, scene so many times, like outside of watching the movie, whether it be YouTube, whatever, film school, to see it going from out of context to in the context of the film is very, very different. Um, and the impact is really felt when she says that. But I also really love I Am Big, It's the Pictures That Got Small, that her face when she says that she just plays it perfectly um that image has just stuck in my head ever since i watched this movie yeah there's a lot of good imagery in this too and like two two that i want to point out are when her and joe are watching her film and she's like i'll be back up there in picture so help me and she stands up and it's just her and like the camera behind her just the light of that mm -hmm. and that dramatic ass music but then also the ending with her coming down the staircase i've always noticed this where it just feels so weird that she's the only one moving that you notice other people are moving but they're moving so slow that you think that everybody is frozen like it's all frozen in time nobody's taking pictures of her they're just watching this woman descend the staircase and it's like ah oh, this is imagery porn for me <laughs> it's a great scene um, but I think it's, this was very, I'm not sure what was expected to win on Oscar night, but this was very clearly, I think, the runner-up to All About Eve. Um, it did win the Golden Globe for Best Drama, where it also won Best Director, and Gloria Swanson did win for Best Actress in a Drama Film. And so, had momentum, just lost out to All About Eve on Oscar night. I also want to wonder if or who rather William Holden voted for that night because he was with Judy Holiday in Born Yesterday and he was with Gloria Swanson in this. 
So that's that is an interesting question. But we can never know because he is dead. <laughs> Not that he would answer us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> he would probably be like, "What did you want to know? Who are you? I don't even remember." <laughs> now let's crack out the Ouija board. Ask William Holden who we voted for in nineteen fifty. Uh, probably be like somebody we've never heard of. Like literally, like none of the five. I voted for Eleanor Parker. <laughs> I wanted. Ah, shit. (laughs) did you run down the other nominations it had that night oh no okay so it did win uh, for the screenplay well deserved art direction which was black and white and score it was nominated for picture director actress Gloria Swanson William Holden for actor supporting actress for Nancy Olsen supporting actor for Eric von Stroheim Um, not a whole lot of movies have gotten those four acting nominations this is one of them. Cinematography, black and white, and film editing. Yeah. Those performances really do stick out. Um, and how you have Gloria Swanson, who's amazing, but then you also have William Holden and Eric von Stroheim in particular that are also very, very good here as well. Yeah. Are we ready for our final film of the Best Picture yes. nominees? Yes. Here we go. All right, our final film, as we have already mentioned a few times, is All About Eve. Um, this actually broke a record with by getting 14 nominations. I believe the previous was 13 with Gone with the Wind. Funny how that worked out. Um, but this is about Betty Davis's character, Margot Channing, um, who is a well-respected, um, highly reputed stage actress. And she... Um, is basically encounters um, Eve Harrington, who's played by Ann Baxter, who kind of befriends um, a friend of Betty Davis's character in the film and kind of inserts herself into her group of theater friends. Um, and Eve apparently completely idolizes Margot Channing, um, has seen her performance. How many times does she say? A lot of times, let's just say that. It's pretty much um, like once a night. Yeah, once a night. And so really wants to be kind of following her footsteps. And she, she does eventually um, because of becomes an actress of her own accord and is really well, well respected. I'm not sure how much else to say without spoiling where the plot goes or whether it would even be much of a spoiler because I kind of knew of it before I even watched. Uh, but let's just say there is more to Eve than she is putting on. And that creates a very tense and awkward dynamic between her and Margot Channing as the film progresses. And that entire group of theater friends as well. I feel very personally connected to the story. (laughs) (laughs) And we all know why, but we all may also have that listener listening in. So... I will change that subject. But no, this is a very personal story for me. I like this movie. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with acting, like we talked about Sunset Boulevard, this is another masterclass in acting, especially from Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. She really, up until this point, I mean, the early 40s are very good for her. The later 40s, 1940s, were hit and miss really so this is a very huge role for her 
and really put her back onto the spotlight of like, damn, Betty Davis is here still. She can act the hell out of anything. And I mean, this is one of my favorite ensemble pieces too, because there's like so many people in this movie who are just giving it their all performance. And it's just, I don't know. I, I really like acting in movies. I look at that a lot for some reason, but yeah. For me, it's all about the acting. And it's all about Eve. Okay, go. Uh, this is another film I've seen probably four or five times. It was one of the, when I started getting into classic films, this is one of the first ones I saw. And when I first saw it, I was a little lost, but the more I watch it, the more I'm just like, I get it. I get why this is such a standard in cinema. And I love it. Another film I love each time I see it more and more. Um, Brett, go, because I lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, so obviously we have the performance of Betty Davis. Um, everybody talks about competition between her and Gloria Swanson. But really, Ann Baxter deserves a lot of love, too. Um, because the way that she is basically able to play two different characters in this movie and really balance those and show that transition in a way that's really authentic and organic... She kind of blew me away. Um, between the two, they're both equally amazing here, as well as some of the supporting cast. Um, George Sanders was actually the only actor from this film to win an Oscar that year um, for playing Addison DeWitt, who basically stirs up a lot of trouble um, and kind of takes Eve under his wing for part of the film. He's great. I really loved Celeste Holm as Karen Richards, who is... Um, Margot's best friend. And um, Thelma Ritter was also nominated for her role in this. And so, like you said, Christian, really, really great cast. And I think aside from the screenplay, that's probably what I loved most about it because the dialogue in this is probably among some of the best I've ever heard. It's delicious. Just the way it's, it's, another, it's another good quotable movie too. Mm -hmm. exactly and it's like they're saying all these things but not in ways that they are normally said there's so much like sass and cleverness to the things they're saying um i wrote down like a bunch of quotes from the movie i could go on and on i think my favorite though i'm not gonna reveal the context but one character says to another you can always put that award where your heart ought to be and that, that is a mild interaction i love that my favorite scene in this, I think, is when Margot is coming into rehearsals and rehearsals have pretty much come and gone without her being there. And she's just she goes up into the stage. And I even put this, I have a um, Instagram page dedicated to the films that I watch. And I put it up there because it's just Betty on the stage alone and it just focuses on her. And she gives her peace on why she's pissed the fuck off. And it's just like the best scene ever. And she just gives this like monologue and they're all like, you're crazy, Margo, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, you think I'm fucking crazy. <laughs> but that and the car scene, the car scene with Margo and Karen, who's Celeste Holm, sort of near the end of it all, where it's just like Betty Davis in this big old fur coat mm. saying her little speech and they're in the cold car. And ugh. again, with the good imagery, the good acting, how many other films have had five acting noms? I should have looked that up. 
I guarantee none of them have had five acting noms in only three categories. Yeah, that's big too. Which that would never happen now. They'd be like, tough shit, this person's getting in, not you. <laughs> um, Marilyn Monroe makes an appearance in this movie, mm-hmm. which I didn't know until I was watching, so that was kind of fun to see. It was like her first major role. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Christian, you mentioned the scene where they're on the stage bed. Um, I think that is probably Betty's best scene in the movie. Mm-hmm. Just completely floored me. So I agree wholeheartedly. How many acting nominations did this get? Five. So Mrs. Miniver from Here to Eternity, Bonnie and Clyde Network all have five acting nominations as well. Nice. Mm-hmm. So, but it was, yeah, so it was like the second to do this. And I mean, hell, it set the record for the most nominations. And I mean, not even, it still has that record. It shares it now, but it will forever still hold that. Yeah. And that's one that I don't know if any film is ever going to break it. I mean, unless they add more categories, which they might do down the line, they probably will. But I don't know, y'all. Avatar 2 might just do it. (laughs) 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 Come back for it. And in this third corner, weighing in at 200 pounds (laughs) in blue. (laughs) We have Avatar. You took 10 years to get to us. How about another 10? Avatar 2. <laughs> Shall I read? Yeah, the I don't know if I mentioned the. Yeah, go for it. I don't know if I mentioned oh. the director yet. First, um, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, um, who actually, obviously, this was his um, crowning achievement that year, but directed another really good movie that year, um, which we'll get to later. And um, this was his second best director win in a row, which is kind of cool. And if so, any of our listeners know that last name, Mankiewicz, and you watch Turner Classic Movies every night, you will know Ben Mankiewicz is, in fact, a relative of Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Nice. Hey, Ben, if you're listening, because I'm going to tweet you this. <laughs> anyway, so... Oh, also, go ahead. His brother, may, um, Herman, may come as someone familiar, as he has written a lot of movies that we're familiar with, such as Little Ones as Citizen Kane and The Wizard of Oz. And as Ben has stated many times, it wasn't Orson Welles who really wrote Citizen Kane. But we will Mm -hmm. save that for our Citizen Kane special. (laughs) The special. (laughs) It gets its own episode. (laughs) Anyway, so this one, um, out of the 14 nominations, six... It won picture, director for Mankiewicz, George Sanders for supporting actor, screenplay, costume design, black and white costume design. Uh, oh, gosh. Who's the costume designer on this? Zay. Edith Head. Edith Head and her very beautiful gowns, especially yeah. that. that. <laughs> Thank you, Aretha. <laughs> beautiful gowns, lovely gowns. But no, the Betty Davis gown at the party off the shoulder very nice and sound recording which i don't get how sound works but okay (laughs) and it was also nominated for actress for betty davis and ann baxter 
which I want to talk about after this. Supporting actress for Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter, the black and white cinematography, the black and white art direction, the film editing, and the score. Nice. So, can I say my little spiel on the actress nominations? Please do. Okay, so... Whilst I agree that yes, Ann Baxter should be in the leading nominations because it's weird if you put the titular role in the supporting category. Um, I, I really want her to win a theoretical Oscar. <laughs> and I kind of feel that putting her in the supporting category would have either sealed the deal for her there. Ann Baxter won in the forties her on her own merit for another film but would it have changed the game at all had she been in supporting? Like, would Judy have won? Would Gloria have won? Would Betty have won? Like, did these two cancel each other out by any chance, do you think, y'all? Oh, definitely. There's no, like, I can't imagine anyone watching those three performances, and four, I guess, and still thinking Billy Holiday was the best. Judy Holiday. God. I still love Billie Holiday, too. She's a great singer. God bless the child. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, but, would you put, but would you put like Ann Baxter in a hypothetical supporting thing? I would. I did for my Okay. In a See. perfect world, it would have been a four-way tie. I think. Mm. I think that would have like destroyed the Oscars reputation for good. Four-way tie out of five people. But I think everyone would have been happiest that way. Mm -hmm. I Anne Baxter is a very strange case in that normally I'm very opinionated on whether a performer should be lead or supporting. This one, I really don't mind either way. Um, I can understand putting her in lead because, like you said, she is the titular character. She does have a lot of scenes like where we are focused on her character and not Betty Davis's. At the same time, this is this is more the story of Margot Channing and her experiences, whereas Eve is kind of the supporting character who's coming in and screwing everything up. Mm -hmm. So I could really see it either way. I do agree. Like part of me wishes she would have been supporting actress because she would have had a better chance of winning there. Uh, probably would have won. And but I don't know the other question about Judy Holiday really interests me. Like. If there were no Gloria Swanson in that category, then I would say 100% Betty Davis would have won. Because there's no way in Baxter splitting the votes. But since you have, I would I would much more expect for Ann Baxter and uh, Betty Davis to split the votes, leading the way for Gloria Swanson to win. But since that didn't happen, obviously, I don't know. I wonder if it would have been even more vote splitting between... Gloria or Betty or if one of them would have emerged. I don't know. That's a great question. And like today, even I'm thinking about career win Oscars. Like I said, Betty had really hit or misses back in the late forties. And then this was like a big deal movie for her. And it's like the Academy back in the fifties. I mean, you do have Gloria Swanson who was in the silent films. Like she got her start in silent films. She's back. She made her triumphant return. Betty Davis is doing the same thing. They're both sort of career. They would have been sort of career wins, but well-deserved ones. But then you do have Judy being like the newcomer. 
it's like a perfect thing. So it's like this weird three-way. I know, uh, Zay, you said like a four-way win, but it's now a three-way cancellation. <laughs> but I just hope like Judy wasn't like a fourth place thing, you know? Like, I don't want to picture her like, you're, just, you're it, kid. This is it. We can't choose. It's you. <laughs> because then you have Eleanor Parker which for some reason I want to say, then you have Nelson Rockefeller. I don't know why I'm thinking about him. <laughs> you have Eleanor <laughs> Parker for Cage sitting there like, hey guys, I'm still here. Like someone who's like never part of the conversation. <laughs> which is sad I mean, she's really good too, I yeah, think. She is good. But we'll but, get to this. We'll get to Caged. But yes, yeah. Eleanor Parker was our fifth nominee for the actresses. Yes. So. We'll talk about her in detail, like you mentioned as well. Do you want the other fun facts? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so this is number two at the box office because King Solomon's Minds, I guess. Um, 8.4 million. This is based on a short story from 46 called The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr. Um, as we're talking about this, I just want to put a side note. The name Eve, now that I'm thinking about it, because Brett, you said she sort of has two different roles in this it's like biblical eve you have like the you know eve from the bible doing her thing and then the apple comes and you have like this bad stuff happening it's that name eve again i connected to this very well um adapted for radio and the stage is the musical applause starring lauren bacall and it is currently in london as a straight stage play with jillian anderson right Yes. The X-Files woman, yes. And number 28 of the top 100 AFI movies from 2007. Number 16 back in 98, so it has moved up a little bit. Eve Harrington is the number 23 best villain. Villain. And number 9 on the 100 movie quotes for Fastening Our Seatbelts is going to be a bumpy night. Love it. Which... Sort of has been the motto of this podcast because I don't know, it makes sense. It's <laughs> <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, I love it. It's great. And everybody should go watch it. I like, um, Zay, your review of this when you watched it recently, where you said it's a good introduction to like classic film. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like this and Sunset Boulevard. You want like introduction course? There you go. All about Eve is almost like a sleepover movie. Like I think, like if you want a more astute sleepover movie, I'd put on All About Eve. Right in between, she's all that and Blakely Blonde. <laughs> <laughs> to put that in between. <laughs> Okay, girls, you thought you liked the notebook? <laughs> it's time for All About Eve. <laughs> I mean, it's good. It's like witty, like girls. I don't know. I, I, would I would be happy if it was at my sleepover. I can dig it. <laughs> anyway, Brett, you were saying. Uh, no, I just, I like how, like, Christian, like you mentioned, both this and Sunset Boulevard are reflective of the actresses' lives who portray them. You know, Gloria Swanson with her silent career and Betty Davis, who is like, at this time, you have all these new younger actresses like Ann Baxter coming in, um, whereas her big heyday was like back in the 30s and 40s and whatnot. So it's kind of cool were, in that way, too. Were you going to mention the end, the ending scene? 
Oh, the ending scene. I thought I heard you say something like briefly and then we cut you off. I I wasn't planning on it, but it's wonderful. Um, kind of similar to Father of the Bride. It was kind of like, I don't want to say experimental, but kind of took a weird turn that I didn't expect in that final shot um, with the new actress who's introduced right there near the end. So I love it. It's relatable. <laughs> and none of you can see me what I'm doing right now at home listening to us, but I am recreating the ending scene. Good. Yes. <laughs> love it. Okay, anything else on All About Eve before we go into our nominee rankings? It's a good, great, great, great right. film. I also believe that I know Rotten Tomatoes has this as the number one best, best picture winner. Ooh. So that is saying a lot. Yeah, that's over like Casablanca. It's definitely in my top five best picture winners. It's probably up there, or at least close for me as well. So, okay. Um, anybody want to volunteer to kick us off with our five best picture nominee rankings? I will. All right. So, in fifth place, I obviously have King Solomon's Mines because it's King Solomon's Mines. Number four, I have Born Yesterday. Number three, I have Father of the Bride. Those two are actually, they feel for me interchangeable. I put Father of the Bride ahead mostly because I have seen it more times than Born Yesterday. Um, and I think it's because of the remake that I could enjoy the 50s version. And I don't know. It's just a, it's a little bit better for me. But they're still both pretty good. Here we go. Which one will it be? Number two. I have All About Eve. Because, obviously, still a great film. But my number one for 1950 and in my heart is Sunset Boulevard all the way. A pause from the crowd. Thank you. It's what I deserve. <laughs> Very nice. I shall go next since Brad is going to be controversial. <laughs> and number five, I of course have King Solomon's Minds. If it could be lower, I would rank it lower. Number four is Father of the Bride. Number three, Born Yesterday. Two, All About Eve. And number one, Sunset Boulevard. A hearty handshake to you. <laughs> oh boy. Okay, here we go. Okay, I don't have a number five because King Solomon's Minds does not exist in my world. <laughs> uh, just kidding. It goes number five. Number four, Born Yesterday. Number three, Father of the Bride. And like Christian, those two are very interchangeable. Um, runs and Hides. Number two, Sunset Boulevard. Mm. <laughs> No. Number one, it's a very close race. They're both brilliant five-star movies, but my number one is All About Eve. I think they got it right. Honestly, I can't be too mad. I mean, they're both great movies. I mean, if you had put in Solomon's Minds over Sunset Boulevard, then the podcast <laughs> is canceled. <laughs> it's suddenly Christian in my podcast now. 
I'd have to kick my own ass. <laughs> um, I mean, okay, yes. I, I, I don't know what the hell people were thinking in 1950, not because the Academy was wrong or anything. I think All About Eve's win is great, right? What I'm talking about, I don't know what they're thinking, is I don't know how they thought about either of these two movies. Like, again, what was the one that morning on Oscar morning where people were like, okay, I'm going to go for this one because I'm like 100% confident or the day before I'm going to go with this one. All about Eve is a great win. Personally for me, it's sunset Boulevard because if this was today, they're looking at a movie like the artist, which is about Hollywood. They're looking at a movie like sunset Boulevard, which is about Hollywood, Hollywood awards itself. Mm. Why not give it to sunset? True. I think that both are like arguably just perfect films. And I think they just like cater to like your sensibilities of like, which way you're like, I don't know, whichever one spoke to you the loudest. And I think that would have been a very hard vote to give to anyone in 1950. Yeah. It's almost unfortunate. They came out in the same year. Um, Cause I really struggled with this because every now and then all this crisis of like, okay, subjectively i know i love this film if i was to somehow possibly think in an objective manner i might say sunset boulevard is the better more well-made movie if you know what i mean um but for me it was the dialogue and all about eve because i just i love well-written dialogue and that really impacts me in that way but it was super super close and so it's also interesting to think that this is a movie sunset boulevard about hollywood and All About Eve is a movie about Broadway. <laughs> yeah. And they're literally, we're literally clashing about Hollywood and Broadway right now. Yeah, but it's kind of like Hollywood's take on Broadway. Yeah, true, but. True. Yeah, so Zay and I are right, and Brett's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming to the podcast. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> but before you go, be sure to check out part two because we're going to cover some more films that came out in 1950 um, that weren't nominated for best picture, but deserve mentioning in their own right. So be sure to check that out. That's when you'll hear once again, our personal nominees and winners um, our full top 10 of the year and some brief mentions of other movies that came out as well. So we will talk to you then. Bye. Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to this episode of the gilded films podcast this episode was hosted by brett Doze, christian ramos and zay cooley and the music for this podcast was composed by joshua arnaldi be sure to keep an eye out for part two of this episode where we'll discuss some films from 1950 that weren't nominated for best picture it should be available in about a week you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Gilded Films. You can also check out our website, gildedfilms.com, for the podcast, movie reviews, and Oscar predictions. If you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate it. Otherwise, you can also find us on Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>